Welcome to El Ganso Podcast, where we explore the minds of rebellious souls that find home with us. Each month, we aim to understand their inspiration and become inspired. Join our conversation. All right, welcome everybody to this episode of the El Ganso Podcast. My name is Kelsey Garcia, and I am excited to introduce our guest today. We have Tom Rothrock here with us. Hello, Tom. Hey. How you doing? Excellent. Amazing. Super excited to get to know you and have our listeners get to know you better as well. So just to introduce you, Tom is a recording artist himself, a producer, also owns his own record label, Bongload Custom Records, and also has worked with amazing artists, James Blunt, Moby, Beck, Stevie Nicks, and many more. So I think you should be really proud, of, even in those few names, I'm humbled to be in the same space and get to know you. So we're just going to ask, why are you here? Welcome to San Jose del Cabo. We have artists in residency, and I believe that's part of your purpose here, no? Yeah, I came with Pimosh, and I realized while I was here, I realized yesterday, the we made the Aquamosh, their debut album together in California and, and uh, a bit in Monterey but mostly in California and in Northern California and Southern California. And what I realized yesterday is that uh, we didn't get together in person for 25 years. We kept in <sighs> touch. So now Plastilina Mosh, I discovered here at this residency, is now my longest spanning musical relationship uh, with a quarter century gap from the beginning till now. And we're making new music here in the studio at El Ganzon. It's amazing. We wrote three songs in the first two days. So it's like, it's as if a week went by or a month rather than a quarter century. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. That's a good friendship too, picking up where you left off. True, yeah, true friendship. Uh, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the two most amazing guys. So yeah, that's why I'm here. That's what we're doing. We're going to play tomorrow at the Beach Club. I'm super excited about that. Yeah. Awesome. So how does that connect from California to Monterey? How did you guys meet? Uh, you know, that Mexican Institute of Sound guy with the hat, I'm being funny because I do know Camilla's name, but that guy, I can imagine everybody like, uh, that, uh, that knows Mexico knows who the guy from the Institute with the hat is. He, uh, was, uh, dating a woman in, uh, Capitol Records in Los Angeles who's a good friend of mine, Kim Bowie. And, uh, around the time that he also was a young man at EMI signing Plastilina Mosh, And so somehow through conversations, I got a call from Kim and said, she said, there's this uh, amazing band that you'll love because she knew my taste really well. And uh, she said, you're going to love this band from Monterey, Mexico. And in Los Angeles, I'd heard about this movement at the time of uh, rock and Espanol. And I heard Cafe Tacuba was the, the first act I heard from that, what was presented in the media there as, as a new movement. And I, and I thought, wow, this is something. And so when that came across my uh, awareness a bit later, Plastilina Mosh, I was like, yeah, I want to hear this immediately. And I heard that the, the, they sent over a, a messenger, delivered a videotape that had the first cut of the Nino Bamba video on it and, uh, and some demos on a CD. And it was just, I loved it. So flew to Monterey with my buddy Rob and we met the band and then we, we went to work right away. There was no, no question. Uh, although it was very difficult to get a budget because it was a super experimental project mm -hmm. and uncharted territory. So mm -hmm. we were constantly, yeah, I think we were, you know, probably recycling bottles, busking, like whatever we did. The oh. money was definitely an issue, but, but we got Aquamash made by hook or by crook. Wow. That's incredible. That's amazing. <laughs> Now, when you hear a band like that, when you're just taken back, like 
Is there something that you're looking for in a sound that makes you want to work together? Because you have your own record label as well. So is that when you want to produce just one song or someone you would like to sign? Is there something that you really look for in a band? Yeah, and I don't know that I could quite put it in words, but there's a there's something that you know it when you see it and hear it. I'm always looking for something that's mm. different, not the norm. Mm-hmm. Occasionally you'll see something that is a classic, traditional any type of music, right? And it's just done so well. You can just, it, it shocks you and it's, it stops you in your tracks. But for things that I'm going to collaborate with and, uh, or work with on a label, looking for stuff where somebody really has a, uh, they don't have to try to be unique or be unique mm-hmm. for the sake of being unique, but they're just coming from their, from their own perspective. And they spend a lot of time thinking about things and, you know, figuring it out and, uh, who they are and they're, and they're communicating that. And, uh, you know, I, I worked with Beck before anybody knew about him, uh, uh, and on the label as well. And he was an example of that when I saw him first playing as a folky with a, a harmonica brace and uh, and a rope for a strap on an acoustic guitar. And uh, Elliot Smith, when Rob found him uh, in the Northwest, the same thing. Mm-hmm. It happened, they both happened to have initially acoustic guitars, but both people with very different artists, but very very much uh, putting the time in and really figuring out who they were and what they were trying to say. And so that's the, I swear, that's, that's what I look for. That's beautiful. It's like you have a good eye and ear for authenticity. That would be the word for it, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned even before this interview, it was like I saw a photo of you and even that radiates in your own photo. So uh, to me, that makes sense that you can really see that in other people. So The first, actually come to think of it, that you mentioned that thing, the first way I was able to put it into words and create something for myself, and it rang true. I d- figured this out before I met Beck. Uh, and, uh, but what I'd figured out, and he was an example of it when I was a kid, like late teens, early twenties. And then I was finding other people my age. That's when I started in the, in this pursuit. Uh, the first thing I realized when I saw Beck, he was playing, he had a strap for uh, or rather a rope for a strap on his guitar, like Woody Guthrie. That's a Woody Guthrie signature. He had some words plastered to his guitar and a jazzercise sticker. And that's another Woody Guthrie thing to put it on. And he was playing like, in like lead belly. And I'm like, how does he know about this stuff? I was a couple mm. years older than him. I was like 22 and he was about 20. And like, how does he at this age already know about this stuff? And, uh, and why do I know about it? And so that became really my barometer was people that are wise beyond their years back then. Now, you know, I work with people of all ages. So, but when back then when I was a kid and I was meeting other kids, that was the, really the, the first thing that tipped me off that they're wise beyond their years. I love that. Yeah. It's very unique to stand out young because that's really when you're experimenting. So I think if you really know your mission young, that is someone you want to work with because if it's so rooted in what they want young, then it's going to be an amazing career. Yeah. So to go back to today and recording <laughs> music, so you mentioned three new songs, no, while being here. Yeah. Where's the inspiration coming from? Is that being here or just rekindling the connection? One of the, we came in the studio and there's this amazing collection of instruments all around us as we sit here speaking now. And suddenly Rodrigo, the amazing uh, representative of the studio, our ambassador of sound, uh, started pulling out these sitars. And uh, and that was inspiration for one track. Alejandro, Honas wasn't here yet. And Alejandro said, Phew, I know Honas will have some cool sitar riff. Let's look. So that was one song. Wow. So we got into it. Another song. I had brought a beat. I went by my studio in Northern California that uh, I built in the 90s and uh, in an old barn. And uh, because we were at, uh, a couple months back, we were at uh, Viva Latino in Mexico. And the night before Pimash played, we were at dinner 
And I said, hey, I met a DJ woman in Monterey, and she's playing a couple blocks away, like in a few minutes after dinner. Like, let's go over there. And I was like, yeah, let's go there. And we went to this beautiful underground disco. We, like kids, they were like sort of looking at her like, hey, what are you doing here, old guy? Which, uh, uh, you know, of course, it doesn't bother me in the slightest, but I got a kick out of it. And uh, we're in this disco, and uh, the DJ that we came to see from Monterey, she dropped away late in the night uh, this rework of... House of Pain, jump around. And we, Hon Austin and I were like little kids, you know, it just hit us right in the perfect spot. And uh, we were jumping around and he said, dude, let's make a track like this. I said, hey, that's a great idea. I said, at my studio in Humble, I have some samples and break beats and stuff from the 90s, from the time this, this, uh, that this song was made. And so I went by there uh, between <laughs> then and now and I brought this beat and, uh, and dropped it on him. And uh, as a, as a Sort of homage to that uh, time period and that apex of what, what for us as kids was an apex of hip- and then the first wave of hip hop. Incredible! I love that. I love the bridging of the gap of the timing too. No, because yeah, right. It would have been so. Yeah, that song would have been when we first met. Mm-hmm. That would have been a thing. And yeah, so amazing. We, I didn't think of that. Absolutely right. And I want to touch on the your record label now because I've reread that name over and over and over. Where did the name come from? <laughs> I. Grew up the majority of my childhood. It was a home base. We'd come and go from uh, uh, this little town called Arcata in Humboldt County, mm-hmm. and uh, which is where the evolution of of weed in America really the strains and the plant really evolved there uh, more than anywhere else in America. And so the the, uh, the bongs were a part of our childhood. And uh, at some point, <laughs> while I was going to university there, and I had a college radio show. This was the very beginning of doing musical stuff. I uh, uh, I had the idea to start a label because I saw somebody in Chico. This guy, Larry Crane, had started a label in Chico, and they were at like a rival university a few hours away. I thought, wow, somebody in Chico can start a label. I could start a label. And I tucked that idea away, moved to Los Angeles to learn how to record properly. And uh, somewhere along, the, uh, along that path, I woke up one morning from a, a really strong dream, and in the dream I'd started a label called Bongload Records. And, uh, and I thought that was really funny. It was about 6 a.m. And I went back to sleep and forgot about it. Later that week in the session, a little indie record that we were doing, uh, I blurted it back out. It came, but the dream came back to me. I was like, hey, guys, I just blurted it out in the middle of the control room during a playback. Hey, guys, I'm starting a label, and it's called Bongwood Records. And everybody in the band and studio laughed. And so okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> Amazing. I love when inspiration comes through dreams, you know. Some of the Beatles songs were channeled through dreams, so I love that. We th- sometimes think they're jokes until it is real. And then you're like, oh, wow, okay, that was actually perfect. Yeah, and some people will talk about it openly, that aspect that you just touched on. Uh, some people will talk about that openly and some won't. I mm-hmm. think and some be- uh, many people, I think more people experience it than talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine some people don't experience it at all. But the I saw an interview after Eddie Van Halen passed. I saw an interview with him talking about that, like how he, his ideas weren't really his. They came from, he just mm-hmm. channeled them or they appeared. And he said, of course, I was working hard and tinkering all the time and learning and practicing. But the big ideas, like I would have never thought to, he was talking about how he'd modify his amps or strain the power. And he's like, these things just came to me. And, and uh, yeah, so I think it's, I think it's really neat when people talk openly about it. Rick Rubin has talked about Tom Petty uh, doing the Wildflyers album, seeing him do that, bring stuff in on the fly, like in real time, like here's a song. Because mm-hmm. it's incredible yeah. what Tom Petty could do as well, because every song was a hit. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. The only time I was able to see him live, I didn't even realize almost to a point how many of those songs were his. I was like, right. I was like, this is this is source right now. <laughs> Every One song is a hit after the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. I love that. And you've worked with so many different types of artists too, which I find really beautiful. How does that compare now working with Pimosh to say, for example? Moby, there was one song I really liked, the natural blues. Natural blues. Yeah. When I I love I love both bands. So what is that experience for you going Yeah I between between it, genres? It helped having my own label. You know, producers uh it's different now. So I'm talking about the era. I was at the end of the the original tradition really of record production mm-hmm. where it evolved from a wire recorder to tape to multi-track to digital. And I came in in the in 1987. I began as an intern in a studio in Hollywood called Cherokee, and then Record Plant. And from there, I was the end of the the analog era and the uh, and headed towards you know the laptop era that we're in now, which is has its own amazing aspects to it. But I was into that tradition. I always felt grateful to have come in at that point and be taught by the. There were people that went back to the 50s and 60s and and had the knowledge and experience and had been there for those sessions of Frank Sinatra and people like that. And and so do uh, or going to Abbey Road and and meeting people who had been there for those famous records and the Beatles and Pink Floyd and stuff. So it uh, I always felt really honored and and. Uh, yeah, and humble to be part of the end of that uh, that tradition and carry mm-hmm. that carry that knowledge forward. And uh, but what did you ask? I completely went off on a tangent. And now, as soon as you asked me back, I was thinking <laughs> Moby and Pimash. Yes, what's the difference? But even I was I was following you down that. I liked that way. Off we went, <laughs> bringing it back to the question. Thank you. Uh, well done. Um, so the the beginning point was the point where before I veered off, I was going to say producers usually get typecast or pigeonholed mm-hmm. into something. Uh, I came in that, in that, uh, end of that tradition, learned all these things. Uh, but, uh, and I started to say too, at the beginning of that, having an indie record label helped me as well. But my personal interest, so I never did, I didn't allow myself to become, you're a hip hop guy or you're a rock guy, you're a metal guy, whatever was going on. You're a pop guy, uh, singer, songwriter, person. These were all categories that producers could get stuck in. And uh, I had a recording partner in the beginning, and we both shared the same, Rob, and we both shared the same philosophy that the center of the whole thing was the song. And so, and growing up, I'd listened to a whole bunch of stuff and been exposed to a bunch, well, not crazy amounts. Not, people now would be exposed to much more, but for the time, I had different phases in my childhood and got exposed to quite a bit of music and traveled and saw, saw music in other countries. So uh, if I liked it, I, I went after it. And so we would end up in all these different uh, genres and styles. And, and uh, yeah, but always in pursuit of the song. And is this, Pimosh, is this a first band that you've worked with in Latin America? I made, uh, and I won't remember the title of a single one, my very beginning of getting my hands on, not being an assistant or an apprentice, where I had to make the recordings and mix them. Uh, I was doing records in Mexico in Los Angeles at this little room upstairs in the record plant called Microplant, owned by this wonderful gentleman, Steve Deutsch, who really helped me out early on. I mean, I helped mm-hmm. him out. I would, do, he, I would do sessions at his studio where he'd get the, the majority of the money, as he should, because it was a, it was a, it was a you know, complicated, expensive facility. But he paid me well and always took care of me, and, and he always let me do whatever I wanted when there wasn't a session in. It was like my studio, and that was a huge support and gift that he gave me. And so the... Uh, in this, one of the things he introduced me stuff, I believe his name was Luis Piesterman, and I think he was from Argentina, but he introduced me to this guy that he'd done a couple records with, and he's like, hey, Tom, I want to take a break. I'm, I'm kind of burnt out. And uh, can you do an album with this guy? He'll come in on Monday, 
and you'll finish the album on Friday and he'll pre-program the stuff. This was early days of, of using computers to, to program music and make grooves. He'll come in with everything programmed and he'll add some timbales later in the week and add the vocals and, and backgrounds and then you'll sing it, or mix it rather, sing it and then mix it. And so, yeah, we did it. And we did several of those albums. Every couple months he'd come up. And so, uh, still to this day, to make a whole album worth of material, 10, 12, 13 songs, it can take months and months. And this guy would come so prepared that we would start on Monday morning and by Friday evening, we'd, the record would be done, mixed, and, and ready to go to mastering. And so... It's a it, miracle. And they're all, they all projects that came out in Mexico, and they, they it compressed my... And I was a kid. You know, I was, at this point, I was about 22, 23 years old. And so it accelerated my, my knowledge to be able to go through the whole process and all the ups and downs and drama of a three-month project in five days... Was and then be able to do that every month or two. It was uh, it, that was a huge gift at the time. Of course, you don't know. You're just trying your best to mm-hmm. to do to not mess it up, <laughs> to do a good job. But the records were popular. I was shocked, and so then we started doing press with a translator, and uh, it was it became a thing. And photos, and then, then he would bring back later. We'd do another album. He'd be like showing me magazine like pictures of like oh American you know guys making these records in, for Mexico, and yeah, it was that was, that was my very beginning. And wow, uh, <laughs> what a gift. So, so yeah, so I, uh, I, uh, a connection to Mexico from uh, from the beginning, and uh, yeah, so yeah, so when the Pimash guys came along, and it was a, you could just feel that it was that we were doing something that hadn't been done before, and that's where it's really exciting. That's the same thing with back in Mellow Gold and the song Loser, and getting on radio when mm-hmm. nobody had ever gotten anything on commercial radio in America on FM, without paying the system, you know, without the system controlling it. We were the first and only people to ever. Uh, or the first ones, yeah. After that, uh, a friend of ours copied the idea and got the offspring on. But, uh, but yeah, the, uh, sharing, yeah, sharing. <laughs> Very guy who said, "Tom, why are you sending your records to the radio? You don't even have them in record stores. Look, I've got all my." He's with Epitaph, and he's like, "I've got all my records already in record stores. We're selling tons. You just send it to radio, and you can't. People can't even go buy it." I was like, "I don't know. That's where I came from. Radio. It seems cool to have it on the radio." Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, Loser blew up on the radio, and Andy came by the office, the Bonglet office one day, and he said, I can see you really listen to me. And then he said, fuck, I want to get one of these myself. And so he set off to, uh, to uh, one night he called me in the studio. He's like, Tom, we've got our Loser. I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we've got this band, The Offspring. They've got this thing. It's got like an Indian guitar line instead of like how you got a slide line. And it was that, you know, keep them separated song. And uh, yeah, he was right. So yeah, he's like, we want one on radio too. But yeah, so that was the... Uh, more That's stories incredible. about how it all went down. <laughs> it does seem like everything's in perfect time for you in that sense of like when you start working on things, there starts to be a natural flow. And I've noticed like obviously you've worked with other incredible artists, but when I was reading about you that you started making your own music in yeah. 2006, correct? Yeah, yeah, a bit before, but that's when it started releasing, yeah. And I've been making stuff throughout the while, but it was a weird, I did everything in reverse order. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, a lot of times... Uh, producers do it out of necessity. Now there's, a, of course, in the YouTube era, there's all these amazing bedroom producers. And uh, there was a tiny bit of that in the olden days with four-track cassettes, but you couldn't make anything of a professional quality with it, real professional quality. So right. now you can. But yeah, back then, somebody would be, maybe they're in a band and they were signed to a major label and they had a producer, but then the band broke up later. And then they, the, so producers would come from kind of these sh- sh- disasters. Really. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but not, not me. I was like, I did everything backwards. So I was, uh, or it was like an upstream swim. I started on college radio and I had like, I don't know, three hours of air experience. And a friend called me up from high school. He said, Hey Tom, I'm, 
a music director at the station downtown. You should go come do overnights on the Top 40 station. So I had like four hours of radio experience, and I got a job making $3 an hour, staying up all night, playing records, and going to class and falling asleep the next day. So I had these two radio jobs, and I was like, this is so fun. And one day, somebody came by with a four-track cassette, and, uh, and my friend had a band, and he said, hey, we want to record a song and submit it to a comic book song contest. And uh, so that's the first time I recorded a song and, and uh, in the basement of the, the building where the, the radio station was in a voiceover booth. We record, stayed up all night recording a song, and I thought, I thought it was genius. Of course, it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> I, thought this is, I thought it was like, you know, like the next Led Zeppelin or something. But uh, <laughs> so uh, I thought, wow, then the, the light bulb went off. Like, oh, I could just make the songs that are, instead of playing the records on the radio only. I love doing that. I love DJing. But... I could also maybe make the songs that go on the radio. Like like when I was thinking of from my kid, I was up 20, I was like 20, 19, 20. I'm from that kid standpoint, I want to make like a really edgy, angry or whatever. Or what, I want to push the envelope. And uh, that, that, so that began, the, that began the seed. And within uh, then that school year wrapped up, it was my third year of university, and I, uh, I dropped out and moved to Los Angeles that summer and, and got a job in a, in a studio as a janitor runner and uh yeah that was the uh that's how it that's how it began but so it was an up, uphill an uphill uh thing so mm-hmm. then i'm recording with no band experience and uh playing a little bit of guitar like to books at home or something to records and then i just keep moving up and eventually uh to the point where i'm writing music but it was always the from just the love of music i'll play songs on the radio oh let's record the songs that go on the radio oh let's write let's co-write the songs that go on the radio let's oh let's and Worked at Record Plant. I was a uh, the low man on the scoring stage that they had at the time, it was, which was a Record Plant scoring stage inside the Paramount Film Lot, Stage M. And uh, so I got to assist and see orchestras going down to film, and that proved invaluable later. But that gave me the idea of working with film and working to picture and and seeing that and the scale of it, it was so much bigger than you know. Like a rock band of four or five people in a room is amazing in a studio, but then all of a sudden 70, 80 people in an orchestra with a big film playing on the back wall. I was like, wow, this That's is cool. That's incredible. So that ultimately led into the, the film work that I did, mm-hmm. either producing or composing about a boy in Collateral and the SpongeBob movie. Mm-hmm. I saw that. I love that. So dynamic in your career. <laughs> I would love to talk about Resonator, though, because that seems like more... Is that your baby in the sense of something that you feel really shows your personality? Because there is an underlying theme, I think, in a lot of the, some of the people you work with. There's a rock texture. Yeah. So I love that. In this one, it's instrumental. So you do know how to like compose all these things. How does that feel for you doing Resonator? Uh, yeah, it's a, a, uh, a labor of love for sure. The beginnings of that came from uh, working on the collateral film with michael mann really got me focused and then on uh on playing slide guitar which came out of a session in the 90s that i did with rl burnside robin i did at doug messenger studio with rl burnside i saw rl and his guitar player and his grandson playing drums so these two guitar players playing slide and uh i'd always loved that i thought there's uh, never in a million years i thought i'd ever do that Mm -hmm. and somewhere in that in that session with rl uh and from him I was in awe of both of he and Kenny Brown, but some at some point during the session with RL, I was, you know, sort of in the control room looking through the glass, certainly fanboying on him, just staring at him like, wow, it's amazing, like from another planet to me. And and uh, there was some 
there was this weird, get kind of hippie about it, there was this weird energetic thing that happened. It's like wave came over me, I'm like, wow, I'm going to play slide guitar. And it just, you didn't even say it now, like 25 years later, or at that moment, it was completely a preposterous idea. There's no mm. way, but it just was like this feeling. And so eventually I, I picked it up and, uh, and started doing it. And, uh, and playing slide guitar and playing with beats, the same palette that we'd been using with Loser uh, and some other things. And uh, yeah, and so that became a thing. And, and somehow I got a little bit known for it with that work. And then later I went on to make a, a remix style album with R.L. Burnside the next year. And, uh, and from that, uh, the filmmaker Michael Mann became, picked up on that and really liked it. And then he invited me into Collateral. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep exploring this. So it's the combination of R.L. Burnside and Michael Mann that got me into that resonator space. That's amazing. Yeah. Is there anyone that you dream of working with or collaborating with now? Like so far, it just seems so amazing, everyone that you've had the time. But you also seem to be a man of flowing where it seems to be offered to you or maybe even to, to venture to say attracted to you in that sense, like who you work with next. Yeah, I couldn't be happier. I'm at maximum uh, bliss factor right now working with the Pimosh guys. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. I love that. So, and that was a thing that I had desired to do for years, <laughs> even with the flow. Uh, I kept saying, gosh, I've got to, uh, got to do something with the Pimosh guys. And, uh, and then we, I sent him a song start about 10 years ago. I sent him a song start from England from my studio at the time in England and said, Hey, check this out. And I'm like, Oh yeah, great. We'll do something. And we never got around to jamming on it. And, uh, I sent him a riff and, and, uh, so yeah, I'm really, really super, yeah, super happy to be doing this at the moment. Last fall in the winter, I rented a place above Santa Barbara in California for a few months to write music in the winter, and uh, the song came about, which is called "Gotcha." Uh, I started writing it with uh, two amazing uh, English uh, artist producers that were in in town in L.A., and we started writing the song, and, and it's called "Gotcha," and. It's the idea of it is something that would be chanted at a at a football stadium, soccer, oh, wow. soccer in America, and uh, yeah, and so, and I wanted to communicate as much as possible without any words, with just vowel sounds, like those like that happens in football stadiums, you know, whoa, 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 mm -hmm. type of stuff. And so I made this track, and then I left the verses blank, and I thought, okay, I'd love to have an, a verse in English and a verse in Spanish, and uh, so I got the track to this point. I'm sitting with it, and I'm really happy with it. And uh, I'm thinking in the same day, um, sometimes I'm really slow on the uptake, this flow thing. It happens, but uh, I'm like, oh, i gotta, I got to find, I need to find somebody, uh, you know, the right person to do these verses. And, uh, and at the same day, I'm like, boy, I still got to do something with the Pimosh guys. And eventually, over a couple days, it finally goes, why don't I send this track to Honas? And uh, so I go into social media and I'm like, well, I don't even have a direct contact. It's been years now since we've talked. I've got an email to Alejandro, but I don't have any direct contact to Honas. And I haven't talked to either of these guys in like probably the better part of 10 years. And so I saw his manager everywhere on the internet. So I messaged his manager and, uh, you know, and put some swearing in Spanish, the extent of my, uh, <laughs> my, my vernacular. Perfect. I, I, sa I, said, I said, yeah, apologies. I learned all my Spanish from Pimosh. And, uh, <laughs> and so he gets this message, and I knew he was going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, you so, got his attention, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what you yeah. needed. Yeah. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, so he messaged Jonas right away and said, "There's some guy, Tom. He says he like, you know, did Aquamash or something." And and uh, and Haas is like, "What? He's got a song he wants you to sing on." He's like, "Send it immediately." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> And that's how we got this. And then here we are today. That's what first got the ball rolling. That's perfect. Well, I'm really excited for tomorrow, Saturday, um, for having Pimosh here at El Gonzo at the Jetty. I know he has two more bandmates here, no? Yeah. I think Gonzalo and Franco will be joining them. So Yes. It's four-piece tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. I'm a bit biased because I play with Franco myself, so I know how talented he is to add to that element. I'm really excited to see. But... I just want to extend a huge thank you so much for doing the interview and having you today. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you better. And where can we, what can we look forward to next with you? Uh, Anything you want to share? These Pimosh tracks mm -hmm. and this track with Honas. That'll be the, the next stuff that we see out in the Amazing. world. Yeah. Do you have a timeline for that? As soon as possible. Yeah. Cool. I, don't, I don't know what they're, so the Pimosh stuff will be on their timeline. Okay. And this uh, gotcha tracks on my timeline, and we're doing a couple. There's a there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So we've made a video. There's a, a charity element uh, for kids, and uh, and uh, so we're figuring. There's a couple pieces of the puzzle beyond the music to work into this gotcha football style anthem. Uh, but yeah, it's all as soon as possible. So Perfect. Yeah, it'll all be. We'll be dripping it out on the the uh, the clues and breadcrumbs will all be coming out on the social media for sure. Amazing. And can we hope for any more music like Resonator from you coming out? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, Amazing. yeah, I've got some in the works. Cool. Well, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to El Gonzo for having us today. And we'll see you guys next time. If you're a creative and rebellious soul looking for inspiration, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on our social media to learn all about our arts and music program so you can plan ahead when visiting Hotel El Ganso.